9, turn with me to Joshua chapter 4, and we're going to look at the importance, the biblical importance for setting up memorial markers for our lives. Joshua chapter 4. I'm not going to read all of uh, the whole chapter. Time's getting away from me. So I want to highlight two things. The bookends, the beginning and the end. Joshua chapter 4. When the whole nation of Israel had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men. I'm going to paraphrase. You can read it. It's right there. Choose twelve men, one from each of the twelve tribes of Israel. Have them go to where the the priests are are standing in the middle of the Jordan, which had been uh, the water ceased flowing so the people could cross over. And he says, uh, uh, Have them go to where the priests are standing, pick up a large stone, and carry it across the Jordan to the place where we're going to set up camp. Now, look at verse 4. So Joshua called together the twelve men he had, he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and he said to them, Go before the ark of the Lord uh, into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you take a stone. Verse 6. These stones, once they are set up, are to be a sign among you. If you mark your Bible, just put a little line under the word sign. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? What does this sign mean? Tell them. The flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a, underline it, if you underline your Bible, underline the word memorial, a sign and a memorial to the people of Israel Forever, You can circle the word forever. Now jump down to verse 21. He said to the Israelites, In the future, when your descendants ask their fathers, What do these stones mean? Tell them. Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until he crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan just what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. So what is the point of the memorial, the marker? It's to serve as a sign to provoke your children and your grandchildren to asking questions. And then you are to tell them these things happen so that your children and grandchildren would learn two things. The last verse in Joshua 4. That they might know the Lord is powerful and they might always fear the Lord. Parents, do you not want that for your kids? Do you not want your kids to know that our God is an awesome God and that our God is a God of salvation, a God of redemption, and a God who's worthy to be feared and revered, worshipped, and adored? As a parent, I am always looking for things to support me in my parenting to get these things across to my kids. If you're here this morning and you have children living at home, chances are you would like some encouragement and some support too on how to pass these things on to your kids. I'm going to give you some ideas this morning that literally could revolutionize your life and your faith. Some big words I'm giving here. I don't give it very often, but I think I can back them up. 
I want you to understand, it is the Lord who commands Joshua to build the memorial. Joshua did not decide to do this on his own. The Lord spoke to Joshua and said, do this. And so Joshua does it. The source of the memorial comes from the Lord because he knows we are a forgetful people. All throughout the Bible, parents and grandparents, all throughout the Bible, God gives us memorial markers to observe. Let me ask you, does anybody here know what is on the front lawn of Luster Christian High School besides the flagpole and the trees and the lawn? What's on the lawn that sits prominently like a sentinel, a silent sentinel? Anybody know what's there? A memorial, a marker, right? Made out of stones. It's quite prominent when you drive by it. Now, here's the big test. Anybody know what it says? 45 years ago, on July 4th, 1966, it was built and a plaque was placed on it. And here's what it says. Dedicated to the homesteaders who ventured to these Montana prairies in 1916 and later. And under severe hardship, established homes and churches, schools and roads, which developed into the Luster Volt communities, July 4th, 1966. Now, how many of you parents and grandparents have ever stopped and taken your kids over there and said, let's talk about this? Because it serves as a witness, a silent witness to things that have happened in the past that should be passed on. Our kids should know the difficulties that were involved in developing these communities. Okay, God has given us markers for us to anchor our faith and to pass on a knowledge and a fear of the Lord. I'm going to give you eight big ones today. Turn in your Bibles to the, the book of Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23. Now, if you're awake this morning and you know your Bible, you're probably thinking in your mind, hold on a second, Pastor Frank, I know about Leviticus. That's about the Levites and it's about the priests and it's about Israel and it's about the sacrifices and the temple and, and it's about what to do when you are cleansed of leprosy. What does this have to do with me this morning? Or to put it bluntly, Pastor Frank, we're not Jewish. What does Leviticus have to do with us as Gentiles, Protestants, Christians today? Here's my answer to you. I'm going to give it to you off the hip. It was read in the scripture reading this morning when Mark read from Ephesians chapter 2, where it says in verse 11 that those of you who are Gentiles, and I think that fits most of us, if not all of us here this morning, you were at one time outside of the covenants and the promises and the citizenship of Israel. But now you who were once far away have been brought near. You are now included. Let me give it to you this way. Here's a word picture for you. Imagine being eight years old and being an orphan your whole life. You're eight years old. You don't know who your mom and dad is. You were dropped off on the day you were born at an orphanage. You have no history, no past. All you have is a name. And a loving family comes to the orphanage. They take one look at you and say, we got to have you. We want you to be ours. 
And so the family, a large extended family with lots of siblings, aunts and uncles, grandmas and grandpas, cousins, they embrace you, they bring you in, they give you their name, they give you your own room in the home, and they say, what's ours is yours. You get not only our name, our home, our family, you get our history. Our history is now your history. And so our, Christ, our Christmas traditions are now your Christmas traditions. Our Easter traditions are now yours. The way we celebrate birthdays in this home are now the way you can celebrate birthdays because you're part of us. And I'm telling you, as the people of God, you are invited to participate in the blessings of the nation and the people of Israel. Is there a single amen? Am I convincing anybody yet? Okay, I am a lawyer this morning and I'm putting something on trial. I'm trying to give you enough evidence to either accept it or reject it. Let's see if I can do it. Leviticus 23, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, These are my appointed feasts, the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. Then Leviticus 23 gives us a list of eight feasts and festivals. Rapid fire, here they are. Number one, the Sabbath. Number two, the Passover. Number three, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Number four, the Feast of First Fruits. Number five, Shavuot or Pentecost, we might call it the Feast of Weeks. Number six, Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets. Number seven, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And number eight, Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. Now let me ask you, how many of these eight feasts and festivals do you participate in on a yearly basis? And the answer is, for most of us here, the answer is one. One. We would say in our Christian language, we keep a Sabbath day. We keep a day, Sunday, the first day of the week, holy unto the Lord. What about Passover and uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread and Feast of First Fruits and Pentecost? Do we do anything with these? And the answer is, for most of us, the answer is no, we don't. We probably hardly even acknowledge our calendar has it listed on the calendar. So why is it that we ignore these seven feasts and festivals? Some of you might answer and say, well, they're Jewish. They're Jewish feasts and festivals. We're not Jews. They're not for us. And I would encourage you and challenge you and provoke you to go back and look at Leviticus chapter 1 and find out who owns these feasts. To whom do they belong? Because twice in one verse we are told they are the Lord's feasts. They are the Lord's appointed times. In the military, it happened while I was in, um, that they passed a law. While I was in. It didn't exist before I was in, but when I was in, they passed it. They said, if you have a dental appointment or you have a doctor's appointment and you don't show up, it is called UA, unauthorized absence, and is a crime punishable by going to the brig, by going to jail. They passed that law while I was in because so many people were forgetting and goofing off and not going to their appointments. And the dentists and the doctors were getting very upset because it was obviously messing up their day. You see, the dentists and the doctors wanted to care for their patients, but you can't care for your patients if they don't show up. God says, these are my appointed feasts. These are my appointed times. I want you to appear before me eight times 
in a cycle, a yearly cycle, with the Sabbath being every week and these other feasts and festivals being at one time during the year. Okay, specific dates, appointed times, appointed feasts. I want you to understand these are not Jewish. These belong to the Lord. And since our inheritance is the Lord, they belong to us today. You might say, okay, Pastor Frank, hang on a second. I'm not with you yet because it says right in the text, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites. Pastor Frank, the last time I checked, we are not Israelites. So that lets us off the hook. Not yet. Not yet. Paul argues in Romans chapter 10 and 11 that we who are Gentiles have been grafted in as wild branches into the natural branch of the people and the land and the history of Israel. You can't get around Romans 9 and 10 and 11. If you haven't read them in a while, read them. Because what Paul's argument is, is that the Christian church gets its roots, its, excuse me, its nourishment, its, its lifeblood from the roots of the Jewish people, especially the word of God that came from the prophets of God. That's the source of our strength. I dare you, I'm speaking figuratively here, to take the Jewishness out of the scriptures and see what you have left. You will not have a Bible. You will not have prophets. You will not have a Messiah. You will not have a Savior if you take it out. Jesus was 100% Jewish. And what's interesting is the New Testament takes great pains to show that both Jesus and the early followers of Jesus celebrated and commemorated the feasts of the Lord. In fact, in John chapter 10, we are told that Jesus observed a feast not even listed in the Bible. The Feast of Dedication, John chapter 10, which is known as Hanukkah today. It's an extra biblical feast. Now you say, we're not Israelites. Okay, Pastor Frank, I'll back up and, and I'll accept the fact that these festivals are not Jewish. They belong to the Lord. They're his. But we're not Israelites. If you're really interested in this, turn with me quickly to Zechariah chapter 14. I'm a lawyer. I'm building my case. You're the jury. You have to make up the verdict. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 16 says this. Then, and again, I need to just give you the quick context. The book of Zechariah is a fascinating, interesting book to read. It's not boring. If if you need something to do this afternoon uh, for entertainment, read Zechariah. It's a page turner. But it has a lot to do with prophetic events yet to come. And they're clearly spelled out. And uh, one of the things that is yet to come is the nations are going to wage war with Israel. I got a feeling it's going to be sooner than later, folks. That's my personal opinion. But anyway, Zechariah 14 is talking about a time, in my opinion, which is imminent. It could happen at any point. But this is what it says. Then the survivors from all the nations... And when you read the word nations in the Bible, you need to translate that into other than Jewish. In other words, Gentile. The word goyim, which means Gentile, also means a person from the nations. So with that in mind, then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the king the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Wait a minute. I thought 
these were Jewish. I thought these were just for the Israelites. And suddenly you're saying that the nations are going to be participating in the Feast of Tabernacles? Keep going. Verse 17. If any of the peoples of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem, I'm not Jewish, I'm not going, to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, they will have no rain. If the Egyptian people, they're not Jewish, do not go up and take part, they will have no rain. The Lord will bring on them the plague He inflicts on the nations that do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. What am I saying? All I'm saying is simply this. We know for sure that the Feast of Tabernacles will be celebrated by peoples of all nations, tribes, and tongues, and languages. Those who choose not to go will have no rain on their land. The reality is the feasts and the festivals belong to the Lord and they are His memorial stones for us to gather together before Him that our children and grandchildren might ask the questions, why do we do this? Why is this day any different than any other day? Not only that, this is where it gets exciting, folks. God has a calendar. I don't know if you knew this, but God has a calendar. And on this calendar, He has set some markers. It's almost like a clock with the numbers 1 through 12. God has placed on His clock a feast and a festival to pinpoint specific events that are prophetic. So... Let's imagine the first festivals, uh, the first click on the top, uh, the first tick on the clock. Tick number one, the Sabbath. One day out of seven, you will gather together to worship the Lord. You will meet with Him at least one day out of seven. Tick tock number two, to celebrate the Passover on the 14th day of Nisan, which is the first month of the new year in the Jewish calendar. The next tick tock after the Passover is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which comes the next day, Nisan 15, the 15th day of Nisan, which is the name of the month of the first day of the year. Tick number three on the clock is the Feast of First Fruits. Now, the Jewish people celebrated these for a thousand years before Christ was born. Suddenly, Jesus shows up. He offers himself as the Passover lamb. Well, first of all, he offers himself up as the Lord of the Sabbath. Tick number one. Number two, he offers himself up as a Passover lamb. Tick, number two, he offers himself up as the bread from heaven, the bread without sin, the bread without yeast, the bread of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Tick, number, what am I on now? Number three. And then on the resurrection, the first day of the week, which was the Feast of first fruits, he rises from the dead. And he says, because I have risen... You shall rise. I am the first fruits of the resurrection. Folks, you can look it up in Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Jesus is listed as the first fruits of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Jesus is listed as the Passover lamb, and he's also listed as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, we move forward 50 days, the Feast of Weeks, to Shavuot, which is the Feast of uh, um, the feast of Weeks. And on this day, which is our Pentecost, the priests would bring the first grain offerings from the wheat harvest. 
And they would say, because we have this little bit that started the harvest, we expect a full harvest. Guess what happened on Pentecost? 3,000 were added to their numbers on that day. Okay, we're doing, we're doing pretty good so far. We can see these markers set up. And now we get to the Feast of Trumpets. And all of a sudden, there is a dead-end stop. Okay? Because we're not there yet. These are the three feasts and festivals yet to be fulfilled in their entirety. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I think it is, he says, And the archangel shall blow his trumpet, and the dead in Christ shall rise. Those of us who are still alive at the coming of the Lord shall meet up with the Lord in the air to forever be with the Lord. We are waiting for the trumpet blast. What's the next thing? Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And you say, now hold on, Pastor Frank, Christ has already made atonement for us. Yes, but here's what's interesting. It's the only feast and festival where there's no feasting and no festivities. It's a day of mourning. It's a day of self-affliction. No bread, no water, no food, no pleasures. It's a day of self-disciplining. Guess what the scripture says? When Jesus comes back, the scripture says, they will look upon him whom they have pierced. They will weep and mourn for him as one weeps and mourns for a firstborn son. Jesus is the firstborn son of God, the only son of God. And the Jewish people will weep and mourn at his coming, just as they weep and mourn on the Day of Atonement. And then third, we have Tabernacles, which is the festival of, it's a remembrance looking back to when uh, God led Israel out of Egypt, and they lived in tents, and God lived among men, a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. We are coming back to a time in the future... Can I say it that way, back to the future? We are coming to a time where God will dwell among men again. He will be our God and we will be his people. He will tabernacle among us. He will establish his throne in Jerusalem. And folks, go back to Zechariah 14. And the nations of the earth will come to Jerusalem to bring forth worship and honor and praise. And they will celebrate the feast of booths, God among us. John chapter, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14, says, And the Word became flesh and made His tabernacling among us. Dwelling. It's the same word for tabernacle. Okay. Each one of these events, these prophetic events, these calendar events, these appointed times are given to you and I to regulate our faith. Regulate is probably not the right word, but it means to keep us on track. So that at Passover, we remember Christ died for our sins. On unleavened bread, we remember that he had no sin. He's the only one that could ever offer up himself as a sinless savior. The Feast of first fruits, which is the third day after the Passover. Interesting, three days later, he rose from the dead. He offered himself up as the first fruits, the guarantee of our resurrection. And you go through each one of these festivals and they either look back, look presently, or look forward. Sometimes they do all three simultaneously. And you have to ask yourself, why is it the Christian church doesn't do anything with these things? Instead, we have created a, a Gentile calendar with things like Maudie Thursday, Epiphany, and Lent, 
And I'm not against these things, but I'm saying, why are we ignoring what's in the Bible? Why are we completely not paying attention to what the Lord has given? That he said, these are my feasts, my festivals. I want to uh, wrap this up. In, In Leviticus chapter 23. I'm going to read these really quickly. I want you to get the point. In Leviticus 23, that lists these eight festivals. It says in verse uh, 14, This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. Verse 21, This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. Verse 31, This is to be a lasting ordinance for generations to come wherever you live. Verse 41, This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Why have we stopped doing it? I don't have an answer for you. All I know is as a believer that comes to the word of God, I say to myself, I will take anything good the Lord wants me to have. And the Lord wants me to have good things. He wants me to have a day of rest. I take a day of rest. He wants me to celebrate the Passover. He wants me to celebrate the first fruits, the resurrection. He wants me to celebrate the Feast of Trumpets and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. He wants me to celebrate these things because they are times when I can come before him and be grounded again in my faith. Now, let's add to these in conclusion. The Jewish people also celebrate Hanukkah in December. Then they celebrate Purim, which is the festival of Esther from the book of Esther. They celebrate that in February. As Christians, we celebrate Christmas, which isn't in the Bible. It's not a commandment that we're supposed to gather together and commemorate the Lord's birth, but we do it. We also celebrate Easter, which the word Easter is nowhere to be found in the Bible and does not have a religious connotation except for the fact that the word Easter comes from the Greek goddess Ishtar, which is the goddess of fertility. You have Easter bunnies and eggs representing new life, fertility. Okay. Then, as Christians, in the New Testament, we celebrate communion as a lasting observance. In fact, I think it says on our table, do this in remembrance of me. And we celebrate, commemorate baptism. Throw on top of that anniversaries and birthdays. And you know what you got? You've got between 12 and 15 markers for your faith every year. Things that will ground you. Things that will nourish you. Things that will instruct you. Things that will help your children ask questions. Why? Why do we do this? Why do we commemorate this? Why is it this day? Because half of the festivals have been fulfilled. They point back to what Christ has done. The other half are yet to come. Things that we need to be praying about, observing, waiting for, ushering in through our faith. I don't know where you stand on any of this. For some of you, this is the first time you've ever heard this. And you're just probably going, he's lost it. He's totally lost it. Well, maybe I have. But I can ask you this. What harm would be gained in taking a look at how these festivals are observed today? And is there anything in them that we can take for ourselves, not for legalism? I never mention legalism, but because we love the Lord and we want to appear before him at his appointed times for his appointed festivals. I leave that with you. I have a number of books right here in the pulpit that talk about the feasts and festivals of the Lord if you want to know more about it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, a difficult message because I know that for some people this just isn't going to fly. 
But for those who have ears to hear, let them hear. You gave us these markers, these memorials. Lord, we should take a look at them. We should, we should, we should ask ourselves why or why not. We should understand that each one of them has deep significance and meaning to the prophetic calendar of Jesus' ministry. And Lord, that the day will come when all of us will have to appear before you in Jerusalem to celebrate the Festival of Tabernacles. We should learn what they are. Thank you, Lord, for your word. May it challenge us and instruct us. And when our personal opinions hit headlong with what the written word of God is, I pray, Lord God, that you'll give us the strength to work through it so that we would be people that, are li- that, w- that live and are led by the written word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, would you come and lead us in a closing? 